Okay, thank you. All right. Let's close in prayer. No, just kidding. <laughs> it's great to see some, uh, some of my friends here. Love coming here. Appreciate Gordon. Uh, I, I see a bunch of uh, present and former Huskers here. So, and uh, some Ohio guys who, uh, yeah, the Ohio University contingent. The security, that, that makes up our security team here. And I told them, I, I told them that I might need that on the way out of here, the topic that I'm going to talk about today. In the book of James, we are in the book of James, and I wanted to read uh, James chapter 2, one, verses 1 through 13. Lord willing, we'll get through it. Uh, even though the bulletin says, uh, strange silence as the title, I've changed it. It's a new title. It's titled, Like a Good Neighbor. What do, we, what, what do we usually say after like a good neighbor? State Farm, right? Yeah, there you go, State Farm. There might be some State Farm commercials today. It's football day. It's a, it's a commercial day. You know, the State Farm commercials, what's funny about them, those commercials were going on when I was back in the fourth grade. Do you know how long ago that was? I'm 66 years old. Do you know how long fourth grade was? I mean, I was 10 years old back then. That's 56 years ago. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I mean, it's the same tune. It's the same jingle. And that's really what this sermon is about today. Like a good neighbor. And today when we watch the football game, people say, well, who's going to win? And there's all kinds of things going out there. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? I like to see a great game. But you know what? I do know one thing. I don't know who's going to win, but I do know one thing. When the game's over... You're going to watch the film, and whatever you see on film was either coached or allowed. One of the two. It was either coached or allowed. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. What is it to be a good neighbor? What is it to have your life on film? And then before you do this, you got to do that. Before you point the index finger, like some of these people wanted to do in the first century church, you've got to be able to point the thumb. Whatever is on film, whatever you've put on film, the film that God gets to see, the film that, that perhaps one day in the next kingdom we'll all have a chance to look at again, the film that we're reminded of every day as we go into the scriptures, it's either coached or allowed. You've either been intentional about it or you've been slack about it. And it's tearing you apart or it's reaping wonderful benefits in Christ. I, I was listening and watching a show last night on Nazi Germany and their persecution of Jews. And a Jewish woman got on. And she said something that was profound to me. She said, I've only kissed two men in my life. She said, one, my husband. She said, two, the German soldier who killed my family and then found the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as he wept in tears to me. She said, those are the only two men I've kissed. We live in a world of revenge 
And as we read this, we're going to see the sin of partiality, which often leads to revenge, and kind of just talk it through. So let's read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, talking to Christians, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poorer in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, like a good neighbor. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For who he has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty." For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. I've thought about uh, this and what it looks like in the world that I grew up in. And as I go through this, I want to, I feel like I need to explain it from the eyes that I've lived in. But I hope that we all can get a biblical worldview because growing up, I did not have a biblical worldview. I had my own eyes on this. And that would be true of you. It's not until we come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ that we actually have the capacity to have biblical eyes now, the eyes of the kingdom, a biblical worldview. Dan, does a, Dan Woods does a great job of teaching that. I love hearing his teaching. And you're very blessed to have him in, in, your, in your presence. But I want to I share a few things with you from a biblical worldview. Um, I, I brought something here. It's a prop. You're not going to be able to see it completely. But this is a, a bunch of men getting ready in a battalion in Virginia in the early 1940s they're getting ready to head overseas to fight Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, North Africa, the European soil, fighting for America, patriots, great patriots. But if you got close to the picture, you would see that this is what you call a segregated troop, a battalion. 
These men are all African-American men. You can see right in the back here, there's some guys up high. They are officers who are white. Black soldiers were not allowed in America to be officers. They weren't even allowed to carry weapons for a good portion of some of these wars. These men went out in front of the soldiers to set and prepare. These guys were in great danger. This is America, the United States of America, land of the free, home of the brave. Well, these men were, were brave, but they weren't really free. At least secularly, they were not free. But those of them who knew Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in the midst of this nonsense were free. And so I like showing this picture because I got a personal guy here that I really like. This guy here with a circle was my dad. Arthur Brown, <laughs> has been deceased for a while now. What a patriot these men were. I'll never forget growing up and saying, Dad, you know, as a youngster, this country, they abused us. They were awful. I'm not standing for the national anthem. I'm not pledge allegiance to the flag. I'm telling these teachers that tell me to do that in school, get lost. This is a racist country. This country was awful to us. They were awful to you. I learned that my dad had fought. Some of these men didn't come back home. A number of them did. He brought back German POWs, prisoners of war. And as they sat in America, particularly in Georgia, where their base was here, they had German POWs with them, and they would go into the dining hall to eat. And the black soldiers had to sit in the back. The German POWs could sit up in the front counters. <laughs> How about that? Land of the free, home of the brave. I was doing that a lot. But my dad told me something that I've never forgotten. And this is how he said it. He said, boy, you're always going to stand for the national anthem. You're always going to put your hand over the heart and recognize this country. I am going to participate in the veteran of foreign wars, the VFW. I am going to honor America because of the greatness of this nation. Was this nation perfect? No, absolutely not. That was rotten. That's the sin of partiality. We have to be willing to say that is sin, just as it says here in the scriptures, in James. We can't look back and say, oh, America was great, 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 great. Great nations don't do that. It had greatness to it, but it wasn't great in everything. One day, we were sitting there. I was about 12 years old. And I love football, always as a kid. We were watching the national championship game. It was played before the bowl games back then in the 1960s. The 1969 national championship game between Texas and Arkansas. ABC television, Bud Fleming, Chris Schenkel, Bud Wilkinson were the announcers. Some of you old guys like me remember those names. Okay? 
55% of the American households were tuned in to ABC TV that day for the national championship game in Fayetteville, Arkansas. The top two teams in the country are playing both undefeated and untied, ready to play, and the winner would be crowned the national championship. Richard Nixon, president of the United States, was there at the game along with his sidekick, Vice President Spiro Agnew. They were both there for the game. Billy Graham was there getting ready to do the invocation before a game. How about that, folks? An invocation before a college football game? Really? On public school grounds? Yep. They were doing it. And we watched the game. And when the players came out on the field and they showed the stadium, there were American flags. I see one there. But there was another flag, too, called the Confederate flag. And they were waving pretty heavily. Confederacy? I thought they, I thought they got defeated in the Civil War. Where did they, they come from? But they were there. And one thing we noticed that wasn't there. Anyone who looked like me. Not there. Not allowed. None of us allowed. Anyone who looked like me allowed in that stadium. And if they were, they would have found bathrooms that would have said for colored only, for whites only. They were not allowed as students or professors or players or coaches. Here I was, my buddies and I grew up, all of us black kids watching the game. You know, Dan and I, we've talked a little bit about worldview. Studies show, Barner research shows that a young man reaches or a young woman reaches their worldview by the age of 12 years old. And there I was at 12. And that was my worldview. My worldview was a divided nation. We are afraid of CRT today, critical race theory, and all these things that are affecting people who look like you who are pointing the index finger at you all, most of you all. And we hate that. We don't want to be judged on race. But we lived in a nation that was judged on race. And what's happened? So I stood up and retorted again to my dad. Dad, look at that. I was a fiery little kid. He said, sit down and shut up. (laughs) And he explained to me Jim Crow. You know, slavery was bad enough. Of course, a lot of nations had slavery. We read about slavery in the Bible. It addresses how to handle slaves. It makes the connection of slavery to being a bond slave of Jesus Christ, using that metaphor. It doesn't endorse slavery and the harshness and the oppression of it, but it does use it as a parable of how we are to be serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But what was really sick in our country, after Slavery ended in 1865. How do we explain the next hundred years of Jim Crow? What was that? Well, the law of the land says we're equitable, but it's not happening that way. And, you know, I didn't grow up in the South, but I grew up in a Southern state in the North called Massachusetts. I was originally from New York City, foster kid, brought in out of an orphanage to some people who lived in Massachusetts. Me and a whole bunch of other inner city kids from everywhere that nobody wanted. 
And these people took us in. In this country back then, in the late 1950s and the 60s, we were not allowed, people were not allowed to interracially adopt. So the only people who could adopt us were African-American people. And my parents had very little money, but they couldn't have children of their own. They were old enough to be my grandparents, and they took me, and they took another little girl from the, from the South Bronx who came from horrible situation. Wonderful people. But in Massachusetts back then, Massachusetts was incredibly volatile racially. If you were a black kid in Massachusetts like I was, you were told you hate the Boston Celtics. You hate the Boston Red Sox. You don't, you don't cheer for them at all. You go to the games, but you don't cheer for them. Well, we're sitting there at Fenway Park, or we're sitting there in the Boston Garden, and we're like, well, I'm not supposed to get up and cheer, but we really wanted to. It didn't matter. I saw Mickey Mantle hitting back then. I wanted to cheer for him. You kidding me? I played in the Boston Garden in high school basketball. If you went to far enough in the state basketball tournament, you played in the Boston Garden, you look up at the banners, you see all the great Celtics stuff, all those titles, everything. You're out there, you know, whooping it up on the court and, and having a great time. And you forget about all the stuff that you've been indoctrinated with to hate the other race out of revenge for what they did to us in slavery and Jim Crow. You don't get to hear this version very much because you live in good old white Nebraska. You don't have to deal with it a whole lot except on CNN or Fox News and get their narrative. But partiality, the word partiality that's used here in the scripture in verse one is really the antithesis of integrity. Partiality means divided. You're ripping apart. You're a fraction. Integrity is just the opposite. Integrity means wholeness. One is a whole number which cannot be divided. And so integrity means what you think, what you say, what you do are all based on who you are. And when you have a secular worldview, you are limited to the color of your skin or your language or your culture or what you've heard in the barbershops all your life, the indoctrination that you have gotten. But James is trying to say here, and I'm giving you a different angle on this, James is trying to say, look, we are one in Christ. <laughs> we have a new nature. And so those of you who are poor should not be treated and cast off to the side and put way off in the back somewhere. And poor could be more than just economics, status, however we keep score here on this earth. There was a time where we kept score on this earth where black people were pushed into that corner. There's a time that's happening now in the day that we're living in now, since, especially since post-COVID, where white people are being shoved into a corner. And you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about it. That's why I say I'm going to need you security guards before I get out of here probably today. It's the only way I'll get out safely. 
Because this stuff people don't want to hear. But this is true. This is happening. We have it happen on teams. So I've talked to our, t- our players about it a lot. Because we come from a barbershop world. Think about this now. All right? Think about two barbershops I'm thinking about. I used to watch a show called uh, Mayberry RFD. Anybody watch that? Mayberry RFD. Now, some of the younger folks don't know nothing about Mayberry RFD. But it's, a, it's about a little town in a, in a country town in, in North Carolina, just off the, off the Smoky Mountains there. And, and uh, uh, Andy and Barney. And there's a guy named Floyd who has a barbershop. Remember? Oh, oh, Andy, 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 Andy. Yeah, some of the old people know. Yeah, Floyd was a cool guy. He had, he had a barbershop going. So he had a barbershop, and the guys would come in, and they'd talk about things that were going on around the town. The issues, and this person, and that person, and they'd solve all the problems of the world. That was one barbershop. I grew up in another kind of barbershop. Uh, you ever seen that, that, that uh, movie uh, uh, with Ice Cube, Barbershop? That barbershop, where everybody is black, and it's more of an inner city barbershop. It's a very different type of lingo and doctrine and everything else going on. And I've often thought, you know, you remember the O.J. Simpson case that really divided our nation. I thought, man, I'll bet you in Floyd's barbershop, O.J. was as guilty as the day is long. He had no chance. And in Ice Cube's barbershop, O.J. is scot-free, man. (laughs) <laughs> he can run wherever he wants to go. You know why? The Bible talks about it. And I want to I uh, hit uh, a word here. It says, uh, as we look at, look at verses 2 through 4, it says, Or if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? As, as I was doing some study on that evil thoughts piece, those distinctions, they show themselves to be judges with evil thoughts. We Christians are not to be judging one another uh, consumed with evil thoughts. There is a right judgment that we have with people where the righteous judge, God himself, has final say in the areas who's condemned and who is not, and the final say over what is right from wrong. But the judgments that we see are basically, they, they, they brew out of a world a Greek word called dialogism, dialogmus. And that's basically opinions, reasoning, conclusions based on what you're fed in your barbershop. Which barbershops have you been living out of? Some of you live out of Fox News. A lot of us conservatives like that. And we like to get our information from there. And we, we... will swear up and down that that's the truth. Or we think it's a greater truth than the other side. And then there's some who will thrive on CNN and others. 
And there's the indoctrination that's going on in the public schools today that's really bent in a woke way that were a lot of us Christians are like, ooh, ooh. Yeah. And then there's those in the Christian schools that can hopefully disseminate the scriptures and really teach it from a biblical worldview. But the question is, where do you get your information? And how do you process it? It, It's not just because you go to a Christian school or because you listen to a network or because you grow up in a family. You and I have to start thinking about our thinking. It says here in Proverbs chapter 22, I believe it's verse 13. It says, and it stands alone, this, this, this verse of scripture, it says, the lazy man says, there's a lion outside, I shall be slain in the streets. It's an interesting verse. It's saying that there's a man who's lazy, and laziness always leads to fear. If you're not uh, an industrious man in God's word, if you're not a person who pursues the living uh, word of God and, and spends uh, quality time with the Lord through prayer and unceasing prayer, just locked into God's word and living it out, you will be a fearful man. If you're not spending the time and I'm not spending the time doing all that we can to allow the Holy Spirit to give us a biblical worldview, we will be lazy, yes, and fearful. We'll be fearful. And today we live in a, in a world that's very fearful with this subject. It's really hard to get a conversation. Like, it's hard. Imagine you. You standing here today, white person, most of you. You standing here today, and you had an all-black audience, and you had to talk on race. How do you feel? Bet you a lot of you would be like, eh, eh. You feel a whole lot more comfortable if the audience looked more like you. See, we like our barbershops. We like to fit in with lots of people who look like us, who are raised like us, who talk like us, who sing like us. But what is your identity? Not what the crowd is, not what network you're living out of, not what barbershop you go to. Who are you inside? What does the Word of God have to say? So I remember one time going out to Imperial, Nebraska. (laughs) Anybody been to Imperial? That's about as far west as you can be in Nebraska, southwest Nebraska. I I first come here, I think it was the 80s, 1987, I think, and and somebody got wind that I was a Christian and said, hey, come on out and preach to our community. You know, we'll have a Sunday afternoon, big deal in the gym, and the whole, the whole communities, I mean, they're not a very big community, so they're all in the gym together. So I get there, and I'm kind of learning about Nebraska, and I'm realizing, man, my friends are right. This is really a white state, man. I mean, I didn't see, not only did I not see many black people on the way out here, I didn't see many people. You know what I mean? It was just cattle and, you know. But anyhow, I was driving across, and that was probably my first time out in western Nebraska. And when I got there, everybody was like, oh, you know, people were looking at me like there's saucers in your eyes. And I was like, ugh. I was already feeling a little bit, you know, kind of, you know, you know how you feel. You just feel like everybody's staring at me. And so, you know, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say and how I'm going to open up and everything. And I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. 
And uh, sure enough, some eight-year-old little kid, bold and brash as he could be, he comes up to me. He said, hey, hey, look, there's that cool black guy. I was like, oh, boy. So now I'm really feeling bad. And I, I uh, finally got up, and, and I was mad at that kid. I was thinking, what's wrong with that kid? What is, he, what is this? The Beverly Hill? I mean, where are we? Where, what are we? And, and so anyhow, I... I I got up and I said, you know what? I just said, I'm going to be honest with the audience. I said, you know what? I heard something today that I haven't heard in 25 years. And it got really quiet, like it is now here. And, and I said, that little boy, there was a little boy in here. He's probably eight years old. He don't know no better. He got up here and he said, hey, there's that cool black guy. And I looked out at everybody like this. And the whole crowd was just quiet. And I said, do you realize it's been 25 years, 25 years since somebody has called me cool. And why did it take so long? And, and the crowd, some of us don't get it. I mean, some of us are kind of, okay. The crowd just kind of, the air just came out of the balloon. Because... What changed my heart as time went on was the Lord Jesus Christ. I recognized that I could stay mad, mad at people in Massachusetts, mad at people in Georgia, mad at people on certain networks, mad at every white person I see. How many times was I called the N-word in school? Every day there was a fight at my school. We were fighting each other. And my dad was one of those people, as patriotic as he was, he said, that kid called you that? You go over here and kick his tail tomorrow. And don't come home until you do. <laughs> but Jesus Christ rescued me from the domain of darkness. That was my rescue mission. And for many of you, you probably didn't have such hateful or impassioned stuff. If the culture keeps going like it is in the direction it's going, you will. Because of your skin color, <laughs> you're the bad guy now. And it's going to get worse. Turn on the TV, the commercials. There's not as many of you on TV as as there used to be. There's a whole bunch of interracial things you see on TV. They're trying to force it down the throat. There's nothing wrong with interracial. We're all interracial. We all come from one blood, Adam and Eve, really, if you had to go by it. But people are trying to push the, that piece together. And it's all about representation and being rewarded for who was the first to this and that and the other. And so as I thought about this, I thought, man, how, how, how should we live like a good neighbor? Like a good neighbor. And what you see on film is either coached or allowed. I hear a lot of people saying, well, I never knew coach. I didn't know that, you know, black people didn't fight in a war. We allowed that. So what we, 
We teach history here. We teach. You didn't teach that history. That never came up. Most of you didn't know that. Why not? Wasn't that significant? I heard a well-known pastor one time on national radio said, oh, he said, man, oh, I just missed the 1950s. He said, I missed the 1950s. The 1950s were great years. And then the 60s came and they were really hard on Christian people. And I thought about it. I said, wow, the 1950s where I came from were hell on people who look like me. But he gave no regard for people who look like me. He just must have thought he was talking to a Christian audience that all look like you. Whatever we see on film is either coached or allowed. It just should not be so. Not among the brotherhood. It shouldn't be like that among us. We should be different. You know what I loved about John MacArthur? I've gotten to, to, to spend some time with him, Gordon and I have, and Josh, obviously, is from the seminary there. Uh, and he's a great man of the word. It's great. But I'll tell you what really impressed me about him. I was talking to a man one day named John Perkins. John Perkins was an evangelist in the South, in Mississippi. Did a lot of work in the Jim Crow South d- during the Civil Rights Movement when it was very dangerous for anyone to go down there, white or black, to help push out those Jim Crow, Jim Crow laws. But John MacArthur, John MacArthur somehow got involved. He wanted to go to Mississippi, and he took a bunch of his white buddies from college. These guys were playing college football together, I guess. And, and they would go and take a car, cars or bus or whatever it was all the way to Mississippi with John Perkins' ministry. And they would be ministering the gospel, building homes, uh, helping feeding the poor. The South was a mess back then. And MacArthur was going on a regular basis. And John Perkins told me one time when I talked to him, he said, you know what? That's what I really respect about John MacArthur. Yeah, he preaches a, a truthful gospel. It's tough. Not everybody likes what he says because he's so hardcore and he's, you know, he's, he's at it hard. But I said, I'll tell you what, man, he's a doer of that word. I saw him come and do that on a regular basis. Like a good neighbor, John MacArthur. Like a good neighbor. Are you like a good neighbor? Will you proactively get up off your feet instead of just saying, there's a lion in the street. We're going to be slain in the streets. They're, they're, they're executing the police forces. There's the rebellion in the cities. Ah, problem, 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 problem. That's the problem with a lot of us is all we do is talk about problems. But the reason why that's condemnable speech in the Bible is because there's got to be a solution. We are people of solutions. That's who we are. We're the truth bearers. Like a good neighbor, we carry the truth. And we go to the unpopular areas. So I appreciate it. John MacArthur, Solutions. Verses 6 and 7 say this, But if you have dishonored the poor man, and are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Hmm. 
you know, that's interesting because every organization that I've been of, a part of, there's really three tiers. There's a top 10%, there's a bottom 10%, and then there's a middle 80%. It's kind of interesting how that, as I kind of look at a bunch of teams that I've been on and so forth, the top 10%, let's just call it the guys that are that really industrious. Man, you can't talk them out of getting up early, being at every class, being on time for this, living it out. You can count on them. 10%. How many people do it? Most people are cutting corners a little bit. But there's these guys that just, man, they're, they're on top of it. And then there's a bottom 10%. You couldn't get them to get out of bed if your life depended on it. They're always late. They're always missing class. We got guys on our team that they're just constantly behind the eight ball. They never get the message that goes out. They never, it's always this, it's always that, it's always another excuse. They miss in practice again, uh, all the time. 10%, 10%. And you know what? You really kind of know where those guys stand. Those guys are easy to deal with. You know, what you, you know what you have to do with the bottom 10%. And you know what you got to do with the top 10%. You know what's a really difficult group to work with? It's the middle 80 most of us. Most of us are in the middle 80. We're in the middle 80. We just get kind of tossed and turned depending on which 10% is getting the most grip on that team or that organization or that church. It doesn't take many to create an up, upheaval, but so much depends on the middle 80. You and I, that's who he's talking to here today. He's saying, look, you got the poor, you got the rich, who are you? What are you doing favoring the rich and, and casting the poor out there? You in the middle 80, Brown, you. Point the thumb. Stop just pointing their problem, the cities, the liberals, the conservatives, this, that. What about you? What's under the hood? That's how this message preaches to me. As we move on, he says, if you really, in verse 8, really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, like a good neighbor, <laughs> you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. I'm going to say something that won't go well with everybody, probably, as if I already haven't, but... Uh, I don't think we have a problem loving ourselves. That's a dead cold statement. I don't know a whole lot about the inner man's uh, psyche and so forth. I, I don't know a lot about that. But it sure seems like we love ourselves. And, and, and the Bible talks about that a lot. And, and that's why I think James says to love you as much as I love me. Do for you as I would do for you. That's the royal law. <laughs> so, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So, when I was in college, a state senator from the, excuse me, a uh, United States senator from the state of New York claimed 
that people who look like me were inferior in genetically in an intellectual capacity. <laughs> that was out there. That was part of the narrative. It created lots of upheaval, and imagine in the 70s, at universities. I was, at a, I was at a Christian university. Well, it used to be a Christian university. Brown University, the Ivy League, used to be a Christ-centered university. <laughs> you mention the name Jesus Christ now, they'll tar and feather you. They'll hang you in effigy. They want nothing to do with you anymore. Because one degree at a time, one man, one woman at a time, decided to close this book and move to a secular worldview. But at the time... That university was part of that indoctrination. <laughs> it can go both ways. And the natural resolve that we have inside is to get revenge. And so I would sit down with my buddies, and we talked about how we're going to take over. We're going to take over the planet. <laughs> really? I remember in high school, my football coach taught, taught us something. We had an all-black offensive backfield. I was the quarterback, which was controversial in our league. You got a black quarterback? Today in the Super Bowl, for the first time in history, they'll have two black starting quarterbacks. Big deal, right? Whoop-de-doo. We've kind of seen it. Back then, when you were a black quarterback, you were like, all the coaches would ask my coach, how does it feel to have a black quarterback, that brown kid, that kid named Brown is black, okay? But uh, one day, our coach did something that wasn't very good. My buddies and I, we had a wishbone backfield, so I had three backs behind me, we were running the option, wishbone, all that, I was a quarterback. We were goofing around and having bad practice. We were getting ready to play a team that was pretty good. So my coach stopped practice and he said, I'm sick of this. And he was white. And he said, you know what? You guys, you four guys, get over here. So we stood there. He goes, do you realize what your people went through? Do you realize that people who look like me did to your people? They smothered you. They disrespected you. We're getting ready to go play a team that looks just like the people that have smothered your, 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 your ancestors. And so you know what? You better change your attitude. So you think that's a terrible thing to say. Well, it was. But it fired us up. We went out there and had a great practice. We were fired up with energy. Yeah, we got something to have revenge over. We got something to really play for now. And I'll never forget it. It was game time. We played all our games on Saturday. So it was Saturday morning. And we were playing the other team, and, and, and just before the game, the captains, I was a captain of our team, we walked out in the middle of the field, and there he was, this kid. And I looked straight at him, and I remember the words of my coach. He was blonde, blue-eyed, and he probably hated people like me. I didn't know him from Jack the Bear, but he probably hated people like me. And I looked at him, and I stared at him. And while I was staring and firing myself up to use that kind of indoctrination to fire me up to play a great game, to take what, what, what God had created in this young man and turn it into Satan's tricks, I started to think about something. I said, oh, he looks like that lady that made sure that I was adopted to the people from Massachusetts. 
that lady that went out of her way to take a whole bunch of black and Hispanic kids who nobody wanted in New York City and put us in homes where somebody would love us. They said, he looks just like Mrs. Chinlin. She's got those icy blue eyes and that blonde hair. And I started thinking of her and I loved her. And this kid, I'm trying to get myself fired up to bang this kid around all day and this team. But I was wilting. When I came back to the, our, our bench to get our team out onto the field, I was like, oh, I didn't think I could play because all my motivation was in hating. What is the most powerful force on the planet? It's love. We don't, we don't hate our enemies. She, that kid wasn't my enemy, but today's world teaches us that that kid is our enemy. And it gives us inspiration to go, yeah, you know, what they did to us in the past, now we get to do this to them. Don't you see that? That's, that's how it is. But we have to say no to that. I came back and I was a messed up kid. That came. <laughs> but I, I learned something. I learned that I was thinking wrong. I didn't know where the answer was. And then one day when I trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, as I began to read the Bible and portions of Scripture like this, I began to understand. So, as I kind of put this thing to bed here, I want to close it up here. Um, it says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he, he who says do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I just find it interesting that he would put prejudice and partiality in the same category as adultery and murder. When we think about adultery and murder, we go, mm, those are really bad ones. But coach, if you're saying that, hey, look, I really don't have anything against people who look like you. just want you to know some of my best friends are people who look like you. Uh, I go to ball games where people look like you. My kids kind of play with kids who look like you. But are you trying to tell me that I shouldn't feel bad because my daughter wants to marry somebody who looks like you? <laughs> I got that a lot. People cannot really get over the where every line was erased. Where do you draw the line? I don't know where you draw the line. But it's big to God. I tell kids all the time, if you took a 3,000-mile trip from Los Angeles to New York City and you were off just one degree, just one degree off south in your navigational charts, where would you end up after 3,000 miles, boys? Most of them say, let's see, L.A. to New York. You probably coach Philadelphia, Delaware, D.C., coach. That's probably about as far away as you'd be. I said, nope, wrong. The answer is Cuba. That's how far off you'd be. If you stayed off one degree for 3,000 miles, you'd end up in Cuba. And that's what's happened in our culture. We've allowed whatever you see on film is either coached or it's allowed. It's allowed. We can be off a little bit. It's not so bad. You know, we're to obey the police, honor the police. Meanwhile, we're texting while we're driving or driving over the speed limit. Because we think, ah, 
That's such a bad sin. Or, you know, we're not committing adultery, but we're willing to look into some magazines and look at some things online and sneak a peek. No problem there, right? One degree off. You transgress one, you've transgressed it all. It doesn't, you don't lose your salvation, but you get temporary disenfranchisement with God. You lose your fellowship with God, not your relationship, you lose your fellowship with him. It staggers your growth. It stunts it. You will lose rewards in heaven one day. It's temporary judgment. So it's worth being all in. But let me close. Let me close. In this day and age of CRT and and I think revenge, this is all revenge. And I say to the guy who ever thought up the nonsense of taking someone who looked like me and saying, you're going to be this only, you're not allowed to be with you guys, that was an idiot. That's idiotic thinking. Because you're going to take a non-Christian world, it's going to come back and say, we're getting revenge. It's going to be Christ-centered people who say, huh, we don't need reparations. We don't need revenge. We need restoration because that's what Christ gave us. That's how we live out of. So let me go back to, as I close, the 1969 national championship game between Texas and Arkansas because that game has influenced me more than any other game. I mean, I'm a college football coach. This is my... 30th year at Nebraska. I was uh, three years at another school, four years at another school of that. So I'm almost 40 years of college football coaching. And then I played college football for four years. And so I've been around college football a lot. And so this really hit me when I was 12 years old. I'm sitting there watching the game with dad and I'm saying, dad, I don't get it, man. I want to get mad. I want revenge. This is not right. Why would they treat us like this? This stinks. Hmm. Well, you know what? We watched that game. And little did I know I was watching somebody, number 16 or 19. It was one of those teen numbers. He was playing right corner, the right side corner for Arkansas. He was a guy named Jerry Moore. Now, some of you may remember Jerry Moore. Jerry Moore was most recently the head football coach at Appalachian State, the same team that he took into the big house in Michigan back in 2006, and they upset Michigan there. Little old App State. But Jerry Moore also was on Coach Osborne's staff. Before I got here, Joe, uh, um, Jerry Moore was one of our assistant coaches. In fact, Gordon, you might have uh, played for him a little bit, right? I think he, he played when you were playing there. And so Jerry Moore played in that game. And I said, what? That's Jerry Moore. I remember watching the rerun of the game uh, not long ago, and I said, that's Jerry Moore. Man, that guy played for a racist Arkansas team. Confederate flags blown everywhere. No acknowledgement of anybody who looks anything other than them. Kind of a Nazi-ish mentality. He played for that team. So I wanted to develop a stereotype. I wanted to say, ah, he must be. And I never really met Jerry Moore until I was coaching at Liberty University. 
and he was back at App State. And one day we were at a coaching function together. And we both had to get up and speak that day. And both of us shared Christ to the audience. And I went up to Jerry Moore afterwards. I said, Coach Moore, I said, that was really good. I didn't know you were a brother in Christ. He said, yeah, I am. And he said, I'm glad that you're a brother in Christ. And we got to talking and got to realizing, I never brought up, I did bring up the game, but I never, you know, talked bad about it or anything. And then we started going out together and sharing the gospel together with people across Virginia, black, white, whatever, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about. I am talking about brotherhood that goes beyond the outward appearance, brotherhood that goes beyond the indoctrination, brotherhood that's founded in loving thy neighbor as thyself where the motivation of love comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ, an active pursuit of fellowship with Christ. It will overflow into others. So it's helped me now to see everybody differently. I have more of a biblical, I'm not perfect, I have more of a biblical worldview now of people than I did because of the nurturing of Jesus Christ. And I needed that. And I, I'm saying this to you today to, to, if that's, maybe that speaks to you. Maybe you've never had to think about it very much. I know I live in the sports world. And I have to deal with people of all different races. So our players know that. The guys that have played here and for years, they've had to, you know, no matter where they grew up, Montana, Western Nebraska, it doesn't matter. Because they have been confronted with people who look like me and are from, they've been probably been told, at least culturally, that they're not like you. Watch out. Whether they're Native American people, whether they're Jews, whether they're African-American, whether they're white, it's wrong. It's wrong. Partiality is dead wrong. Will you consider not only thinking about this more, articulating it, I got a lot to learn about it, but I just wanna, I wanna inspire you to be willing to bring it up. In sports ministry, ministries like the ministry that Gordon and I are in, Kingdom Sports, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, you name it, are we intentional that way? Or are we just allowing things to happen? Ah, uh, there's no kids in the area that, that you know, are any different, so we, we're not ever gonna. Man, expose your kids, expose people to others Not because good race relationships is the goal. It's just part of the overflow of the rescue mission. Because I can tell you right now, what's on the mind of the hearts of the people in the public square, black and white, and liberal, conservative, it's retaliation. It's revenge. And it needs to be love. Like a good neighbor. Are you like a good neighbor? What you see on film is either coached or allowed. When we turn on the film of your life, and every word and every thought 
is plain, what shall we see? Let me pray. Father, just thank you for the opportunity to share a very difficult word, very emotional. Lord, I thank you that that you've put me in a world where more evidence of my sinfulness could be released and flushed out. And Lord, there's still more in there. If I were to dig deep enough, Lord, and I pray that I will, there's more junk still in there that needs to come forth. If there's anything below SEE level, C level here, Lord, among us as a congregation, as an individual, as a country, as a culture, may it come forth. Not to please the masses, Lord. Not to just, you know, run the narratives of Democratic or Republican or, you know, it's that we would be biblical, biblical Christians, Lord, loving our neighbor as ourselves, Lord, that we would be that great neighbor and that we would never even be afraid to stand up in a congregation, Lord, where no one looks like us and no one believes us and still deliver the message of love that comes out of the scriptures, Lord, that we would not fear anyone, Lord, because if God is for us, who could be against us, Lord? I pray we would be intentional with our youngsters so that they're not indoctrinated, Lord, when they go to schools and different places and hearing narratives, Lord, that do not buy in to the scriptures. I pray that we as parents would be proactive, Lord, in teaching the scriptures in the love way that Jesus Christ has authored us to do. We love you. Praise you, Lord, and may there those if here today, Lord, if they don't know you as saving Lord, maybe this is the day where they will allow themselves to be rescued by what you did on the cross in your resurrection from that dead. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.